1: You know I'm um, right. Nick Durst here with Joe calabrese said, Joe, I don't think it's a far stretch for us to say
0: that this is the best guest we've ever had. <laughs> uh, I feel like you were gonna make that pun. Uh but what's really interesting is uh we have somebody now with strong ties to the New York area, uh somebody who has worked in Newsday. Uh, for almost 30 years uh, so it's almost unheard of that you hear now somebody working in the same spot uh, we know in the, the the landscape of sports media everybody keeps bouncing around back and forth so here's somebody who has stood in the same place for really really long time uh specialized in, in coverage here of the new york area we're really excited to have him on uh, and you alluded to yes he is one of the best he's neil best neil good morning welcome how are you today
2: Thank you. You know, the scary thing is, it's actually 35 and a half years. Uh, at so, yeah. And I first was there in 80, 82 briefly as a part-timer, but 35 and a half years in a row, which is, as you said, kind of incredible. It, it, especially in this era. I mean, I'm grateful for it, but it is kind of scary when I think about it. I just did I just did a tweet saying I'm covering Rangers practice on live stream My first Rangers practice was at Rye Playland 33 years ago. Wow. Wow. Kind of crazy. It's
1: impressive. So you're used to interviewing people. So today you're going to be the one being interviewed. So we appreciate you taking some time here. When did you know that you wanted to pursue a career in journalism or or sports journalism? Was it high school, were you younger, or was it when you were at Cornell? (laughs)
2: Uh, this always sounds like it's a joke, but it's actually true. I had no other marketable skills, really. so I did it by default. Um, you know, I was always a pretty good writer and I was always a sports fan and it seemed like a natural thing. so, I mean, yeah, I worked on the high school paper and the college paper and um, but it wasn't like some specific dream to do this uh, for a living. It just kind of happened organically and I mean, you know, if you had told someone in high school I would be doing this when I was 60, they would say, oh, that sounds, oh, that seems right, but it still wasn't like a a specifically targeted career goal. It just kind of happened because I didn't know what else to do with myself.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think it's, you know, sometimes you just fall onto things, right place, right time. So tell us about the process, you know, when you're you're at, at Cornell, you're going to graduate, you're ready for the Cornell Daily Sun. How did you you start sending, I guess, your your portfolio, your work samples to to get that part-time role at first with Newsday in 1982?
2: I have, you know, I was cleaning out my house, which we're selling in a couple of weeks, and I have all all my rejection letters I kept from that summer from every major, well, every major and minor paper in the country. Uh, But I was fortunate because uh, the one that I sent to Newsday, even though that's obviously a major paper, um, you know, I was a Long Island person, and they were hiring part-timers to take high school scores over the phone, which they still do, and which was an awesome part-time job. It paid nine twenty-seven an hour, which in 1982 was incredible, and it also got you in the door to, you know, be exposed to that environment. So that was a great part-time job, and I just got it by writing a letter, like all the other letters I wrote, and that was one of the few that actually responded with something encouraging. So in the in the summer of 1982. Our two Newsday Sports interns were Tom Verducci and Ken Rosenthal. And then they we're now, you know, the two of them are the sideline reporters for the World Series. And then that fall I came on as a part-timer. So um, it was a pretty good Bob Herzog, who just recently retired as one of our editors, hired all three of us. So he was pretty proud of that. Um, and then four months later, I answered an ad in a publication called Editor and Publisher, which I don't know if it still exists, but there was an ad for a job in Anchorage, Alaska, and I answered it and they liked the fact that I knew college hockey from Cornell and that I was at Newsday though I was just a part-timer. So that was attractive enough for them to bring me up to Anchorage.
0: You know, it's really outstanding. Uh, you mentioned Verducci and Rosenthal. Uh, we've had guests on previously and a few who have gone through Newsday or have had connections and ties to Newsday. And it almost seems like it, it's a rite of passage uh, the amount of, of, of talent and, and star power and, and name power there. Uh, a lot of people don't ne- really necessarily expect it. Uh, you mentioned Verducci, you mentioned Rosenthal. Uh, is there any way you can elaborate on some of the other names that you got to work with uh, through the years, some of the great names that, that passed through Newsday that have now eventually gone on to bigger and better things elsewhere?
2: You know, it's interesting because, you know, I don't want to, de- you know, denigrate Newsday in any way because it's a great paper in its own right. But, you know, the re- the reality is it has over the decades been sort of a farm team for people who have gone elsewhere. I have a poster from an uh, APSE award we won in 1988 or nine, which is now packed away. But when you and it has all the staff members on it and it's really pretty incredible. I mean, we had, yeah, I mean, we had Verducci covering baseball. We had Peter King covering football. We had Tim Layton covering college college football and basketball and yeah I mean Tony Kornheiser started there I mean we you know not to mention all the people who are Newsday paper boys, because that's all another category of of uh, that I often <laughs> refer to people who grew up on Long Island who are Newsday Paperboys South Palantonio I was just had a long talk to him about that and um, just, he had Ken
0: Davidov on too and he's got connections there
2: um, yeah, there's, no, it's it's really it, it, again. We've had plenty of people, you know, like me, who've been, you know, may have been lifers. Um, but the amount of people who've come through at some point is pretty amazing.
1: Like the Bill Belichick coaching tray. Everybody wants <laughs> to check that and take a shot. And, the,
2: the other thing, and frankly, this is something that's helped me, uh, especially on the sports media beat. Um, so many people who've gone on to big things in life just happen to grow up on Long Island and Newsday is their hometown paper. And, you know, some movers and shakers who might not otherwise care about talking to Newsday, they do it just because it's like, wow, you know, my mother will be so excited. You know, that kind of thing. A lot of everyone from Long Island has some kind of connection to Newsday. So So how,
1: how was your time working in Alaska? How cold was it and how did you end up transitioning back home to Newsday?
2: It was, uh, you know, I mean, after four years in Ithaca, to be honest with you, it wasn't that Anchorage is not that bad. The winter is really long more so than harsh. So I was used to it. To me, the daylight thing was much weirder. You know, the fact that sunrises are for about three hours in December. Uh, but, you know, I covered college hockey. I covered Alaska League Baseball, which is... Uh, it's still there, but it was a bigger deal then. When I was there, uh, you know, Mark McGuire and, and Barry Bonds, and I talked to Randy Johnson when he was a 19 year old playing for the Anchorage Glacier pilot. So that was another big part of the job. And it was cool. I mean, it was uh, for a person who spent their whole life in the New York area, uh, to spend two years in Anchorage, Alaska was definitely a good, um, you know, a good place to pay your dues. Just yesterday, I got something from a college friend who used to live in Anchorage, an Alaska care package with Alaska beers and, and, and uh, mo- actual moose droppings and a t-shirt from a bar I used to go to. Anyway, uh, you know, that's the only place, I've, I mean, considering that's the only place I've ever worked other than Newsday, It was a cool place to spend two years, and now 37 years later, it's still kind of an interesting conversation piece for people to hear. Oh, I'm actually, come to think of it, I'm wearing my Alaska Alaska hoodie. I just, that was by, you know, that wasn't on purpose, but uh, anyway, so yeah, I, I, uh, being in Alaska was a cool place to to pay your dues, Um, and I still have, you know, friends from there and hoodies from there, so.
1: So... So you joined Newsday. What were you originally writing about when you first started there?
2: So the the reason I came back was, and again, at that point, I still wasn't definitely sure I was gonna stay a journalist, but I came back to say hello to Dick Sandler, the sports editor at the time, literally just to say hello, not to ask for a job, summer of 1985. He said, you know, we're starting this um this this new New York City edition. And I need someone who knows what they're doing just to cover high schools for me. You want, you know, you want part-time, you want to do it. And I said, I had, again, I had nothing else to do. So I said, sure. And then I did that about a year in, they made me full-time. But my first five years were covering high schools for the New York City edition. And again, for a suburban kid, it was incredible education in New York City, because you know, you're covering high schools. It's not like you're just Going from your apartment to Madison Square Garden or something. I was in every nook and cranny of the city at the height of the crack epidemic and 2000 murders a year. And New York was not in a good place, but I was just like, you know, 25 and going all over the city. And uh, it it was really a good education, which to this day helps me, uh, you know, know the neighborhoods, especially Brooklyn and Queens. and you know the the basketball players I covered in that era. You know Kenny Anderson was the biggest star in that era, but a lot of future NBA stars. You know I saw Jamal Mashburn when was a fifteen year old, and you know all these guys who are now almost as old as me. <laughs> but I saw them when they were I saw them when they, when they were kids.
1: So you mentioned covering the Rangers. We know you we covered the Giants as a beat reporter. You did a lot of St. John stuff. Overall, what was your what's your favorite team to cover?
2: Uh, You know, as a sports fan, I'm a hockey guy, but the best beat in terms of, uh, you know, lifestyle and predictability, you know, covering the Giants for 10 years when I was, when my kids were very young was a really good um, way to be a sports writer and have some kind of work life balance because, you know, football is extremely predictable. It's except for working Sundays, it's really a nine to five job weekdays and the, the the road trips are, you know, a day and a half. So, uh, and the Giants, you know, there was some interesting teams there in those 10 years with the Giants. I am, of the six Giants and Jets Super Bowls, I am the only Newsday beat writer to cover a loss because that was when they got killed by the Ravens in Super Bowl thirty-five. Um, but, yeah, in terms of sports writer, well, also most of the games are during the day, which is awesome for sports writers. So uh, that was a great job and one that a lot of people never leave. Paul Schwartz started a year before me in 1994, and he's still doing it for the Post. Rich Samini, former Newsday guy, he's been covering the Jets since, you know, mid-80s at Newsday. So it is the kind of job you can do forever to have an actual life, unlike, you know, covering baseball, which you really can't. <laughs> So.
0: <laughs> and obviously we had Paul Schwartz on too, as well. Uh, we had him on just before David off. So uh, very funny connection. To, yeah, to, to,
2: Paul, Paul, Paul sat next to me at the, uh, the old giant stadium press box for all those years and would see me banging my head against the table while I was transcribing endless Jim Fossil <laughs> press conferences. And anyway, go ahead.
0: So you speak about press conferences. So I want to piggyback off Nick's point from before. Uh, Was there any uh, press conferences off the top of your mind that stand out to you in your memory? Uh, And to also piggyback off Nick's point uh, with the team point, who were your favorite players, uh, coaches, managers, front office executives, people that you got to cover through the years?
2: Well, I mean, one press conference that comes to mind and a lot was written because the 20th anniversary was a couple months ago, but Jim Fossil guaranteeing they would go to the playoffs in 2000 uh the day before Thanksgiving was a very memorable bizarre press conference that is you know right up there um and you know the thing about covering the Giants in that era it's different now not just for the Giants but for all teams things are much more restricted but I mean in that era at practice you'd walk up to if you had a question to ask Wellington Mara you walked up to him and asked him a question and if you had a question to Ernie Accorsi who was a former sports writer. He was great to deal with because he understood where we were coming from. But again, you walked up to him in practice if you had a question. I mean, I know I think uh, i talking like an old guy about how great things were in olden times, uh, but you know, I'm not quite old enough to remember like Super Bowl one where the reporters covered it by going to the uh, hotel and knocking on Bart Starr's hotel room door. I'm not quite that old. And I, or, or even like traveling with the teams. I didn't play cards with Babe Ruth on the train to Chicago, so I'm not that old. But yeah, that j- it was just a different era. And pe- those are people that I remember, you know, dealing with on a very normal human level. Wellington Mara, say, hey, Wellington. Oh, well, I would call him Mr. Mara. Uh, hey, Mr. Mara, you know, you, you what do you think of X such and such player? And then he'd say, oh yeah, it reminds me of uh, so-and-so from 1935 uh, and he, you know, he, he knew he was a contemporary of those players in the 30s. So he would tell you, you'd know, hang out with them. So he could tell you about these guys. Um, so, yeah, that was pretty cool. Because even, you know, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when Wellington was not popular with fans in the 70s because the team was so terrible. But by the time I was covering the team, he was this sort of, you know, venerable, iconic figure. So it was kind of cool getting to know him on a personal level.
1: What makes a better story for you? Uh, you know, consistent winner—it's uh, the Giants or the Rangers or the latest Jets or Knicks debacle. What's better for you to write about?
2: Uh, it's more—it's p- <laughs> more pleasant to write about a team that's winning because everybody's happy and they don't—they're easy to deal with. There's often, of course, it's more interesting covering a terrible team. Uh, but sometimes, you know, sports writers who are not in the mood to uh, who want a little bit easier time—the the easiest thing is a nine and seven football team because they're just good enough to not be a catastrophe they're just bad enough to not be in the super bowl because that's you know being in the super bowl is a lot of work so i would say the easiest is nine and seven team the most pleasant is a 15 and one team and the most interesting is a one and 15 team uh but uh, it's nice to have some nine and seven teams let's put it that way so you cover sports
0: media and sports business for newsday and uh for our listeners, I want to ask you: What are the primary differences between going, uh, doing your daily normal routine? If you were to cover a team such as the Giants uh, or the Rangers or, or any of those teams, uh, what are the different channels and avenues that you have to go through in order to to find the information uh, to find the the hook that you need for the story that you're writing related to? the media, the business side of things. Uh, for example, we'll we'll use the, the whole Islanders arena situation, right? Uh, Nassau Coliseum kind of in limbo ownership, kind of in limbo. Everything has sort of come together now very, very really, really, uh, neatly and nicely now over the course of the last year or so, uh, for the Belmont arena, which is now under construction. And it, it's pretty much, uh, most of the way done. So, Tell our listeners uh, what are the primary differences when you're working on a story related to business uh, and, and stuff like that, as opposed to just covering a team normally uh, like any other beat writer?
2: Yeah. Well, first of all, as far as the Islanders arena goes, thank goodness we have uh, reporters other than me who have followed that saga for the last 20 years. <laughs> Jim Boundback from sports and some of our news side people. I want no part of that and we have good people doing it, but uh, the two the two things about the media beat that are I really appreciated are one, uh, because of my age, uh, it, it's nice to be that that most of the people I deal with are, you know, not 25 years old, whether it's executives or announcers. I'm talking about people who are kind of my contemporaries, which has been uh, a, which has been important to me, I think. I, when I did the Giants, I was about ten years older than the players. Same thing with St. John's basketball, same thing with high schools. i managed to not be too much older than the people I'm trying to talk to. So that's helped. But the other interesting thing about the media beat, particularly in this era where players and coaches are so restricted and buttoned up is the access is incredible. I mean, the biggest names in the business tend to want to talk to you partly because they're trying to promote, you know, their games. And they're also just more relaxed. I mean, if you're, Al Michaels, Joe Buck, uh, Bob Costas, I mean, whatever names you want to say, Mike Fred Sussan. Um, You know, these guys... COVID-19 is still around, but that doesn't mean the Army ROTC programs are not there for you. Earn scholarships for school and pursue the career you want. The leadership-developing Army ROTC classes will give any full-time student the focus and resources that can open doors down the road. Start sharpening the skills that will carve out your future today. Learn how at goarmy.com slash ROTC. Army ROTC. Now accepting college scholarship applications. Visit GoArmy.com slash money for college. You know, in my era, the players would sort of give you their phone number if you knew them and it was not a problem. Now they're much more careful. Th- these guys in, in the media business, the biggest names of the business are like, take my number or call me anytime you need anything. You know, they're really eager to talk to reporters. Um, and that's obviously pleasant for a reporter. So the media stuff has been a great thing for me at this stage of my, you know, life slash career, because it'd be hard for me to be a beat writer in this era where, you know, part of the job is bonding with twenty-five-year-olds and doing that when you're thirty-five is one thing. Doing it when you're sixty is kind of tough. You know, I got my daughters are twenty-five and twenty-three, so, you know, they're old enough to be starting in the WNBA, I guess. <laughs> so.
1: Joe and I and many people are a big fan of the sports watch column.
2: Particularly,
1: we love the WFN and more particularly the Mike Francesca articles. Is it safe to assume that those articles do very well for you as far as as views go? And also, how is Mike doing these days? I think we're do I think we're due for another update.
2: I did a I talked to him. I was it, a few. I did do a thing on him. Well, it's all all sixty years is a blur at this point. But I talked to him a few weeks ago. Um. Yeah, I mean, people don't tend to not believe me when I say this, but it's true that he generates more traffic on our website than, I mean, you can't name anybody else, Eli Manning or Aaron Judge or Kevin Durant. I mean, there, there is no person who generates more on our, when Mike came back from retirement people were like, oh, you must be happy. Now you got something to write about. I'm like, no, the guy who's happy is our web editor because this guy is web traffic gold. And now Craig Barton is kind of like that too. Everything we write about him tends to go crazy on our, uh, you know, on our site. So yeah, I mean, Mike, there's something about it. He's the, you know, one of those guys people love to hate. He's also, you know, sports talk radio people, you know, people know they can't start in center field for the Yankees, but most people think they could be on FAN. So he's more relatable in that sense. He's in people's houses five and a half hours a day for 30 years. Um, so it was an incredible phenomenon. And when people would complain about me writing too much about it, I'd be like, you know what, call my editor. Like, don't, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I mean, it'd be like if you're on the Yankees beat and Derek Jeter has a good relationship with you in his prime and he's talking to you, well, yeah, you're gonna talk to him. So I talked to Mike because why wouldn't I? Uh, but hes he seems to be handling retirement fine so far. I mean, he hasn't spent as much time in Florida as he thought he would because of the pandemic and his kids are still in school. So he's got all three kids in high school. So he seems to be fine with it so far. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't think he's coming back to FAN, but I mean, maybe he would find some other venture of some kind on the air in some form, but... Um, I think he realized, you know, that eventually realized that it was time to go and he seems fine with it so far. And again, now, now the clicks have moved on to Carton. Like, you know, it's like just write stuff about Carton and, you know, the clicks start happening. So I guess, I guess that's what I'll do. My relationship with Carton, who's called me a clown and a two-faced liar and all kinds of stuff on the air, not quite what it was with Mike, but, but Carton gets it and he, he's, um, yeah, he's, he's willing to talk to me, so that's good.
1: So Francesca, obviously one of those people you mentioned that Newsday was their paper growing up, so the close ties there in Long Island. What was it like covering the breakup of Mike and
2: the Mad Dog? That was a very stressful summer. It was 08, I guess. It was 08, right? Yeah, because um, I wrote that in June, and for two months – like my the, my competitors at the other papers did not write a single word about it. Nothing happened. Uh, you know, Rusa did a non-denial denial the first day I wrote it. Mike just didn't comment. And it just kind of didn't, like nothing happened for two months until finally in mid-August they announced it. So I was, uh, let's just say I was relieved when they finally announced that two months after I wrote it because I was definitely out there on a limb and it uh, fortunately it worked out but uh, uh, yeah (laughs) because it also could have changed you know I you know I couched it when I first wrote it like you know it it, it, indications are it could happen you know I didn't write it as a as a flat out fact so I did cover myself but still of course I would have looked pretty bad if they didn't break up
1: so you mentioned Carton and you were tracking it that he was going to be coming back he's back now and you know you had some articles about potential co-hosts i think they settled on the right one uh but were things really serious where they were trying to go the the bart scott uh bart scott route again where they were you know trying to get willie cologne or another former athlete because i think that doesn't really work in, in this market unless you're a native new yorker such as boomer siason
2: yeah, I had written early on that they, they liked the idea of Bart Scott, and then, then Andrew Marchand and the post wrote a much more detailed account of how serious they were about Bart. I talked to Bart about this two days ago, or I just wrote a story about that, that we just posted. Um, yeah, I mean, they were, they, I think Bart was their first choice. And, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, just talking to Bart on the phone, he is a funny guy. I think he, I think he would have been a very interesting match with Carton. Uh, I think the only problem I have with Carton and Evan is they're, I mean, they're different personalities, but their backgrounds are similar. I mean, they're just lifelong media guys. At least Bart, you have that different dynamic with the athlete. Um, so I think it would have worked. Uh, I, I think it's also possible that uh, Carton and Evan will work in the long-term. They've already made some inroads on the, in the ratings with Kay. But I do think it could have worked with Bart uh, just because I, I do think Bart's a very interesting personality. And uh, he's doing pretty well with Han, so, uh, but, you know, whatever. Bart, Bart, you know, ESPN just made more sense for him because he could be on TV, and that was showing national, so he's happy. And I think FAN's happy so far with uh, Craig and Evan.
0: Yeah, I think Evan and Craig have done a really good job. And I think now, uh, that afternoon time spot, uh, more so since Mike returned and, and, and even when he was doing his, his, his final few years there, Uh, I think it it opens up the scope of what they can talk about. Uh, I think the entertainment value uh, from a bantering perspective is definitely a little bit higher. Uh, So we speak about Evan, we got to talk about his longtime partner, Joe, uh, Mr. Joe Benningo. How is he enjoying retirement so far? Have you heard any, uh, anything regarding him?
2: No, I have not spoken to him or anything detailed. I assume he's fine and playing golf in Florida. You know, he, he, You know, just like with Francesa, just like me in a few years, you know, there comes a time where it's hard to sustain your interest level and you're being up to date on stuff. And I think he realized it was kind of time and Craig, you know, I mean, how often can Evan tell Joe at, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon about something that's been talked about on social media since six in the morning. Now he doesn't have to worry about that anymore. So Joe had a great run. He was a great personality. He obviously resonated with fans because it was kind of every man you know, fan take on things versus a cynical, jaded, detached media types. Uh, so that was all good. He had a great run, but I do think it was time for him to move on. And, and, and having Craig there just re-energizes that time slot. And, you know, kind of like you said, it, 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 it expands the possibilities of things to talk about because Craig is a got a lot of stuff rattling around in his head. So it does make for a more interesting show.
1: Are there any rumblings about a Carton and Roberts simulcast on a network, MSG or SNY or anything like that?
2: I would be surprised if that does not happen in you know the first half of this year. I know they're working on it, um, and I think it would be good for them. I don't know where you know. I've always thought, it, yeah. I mean, to me, if you're MSG or SNY, you like it's it's sort of a no-brainer just to right. get some programming. But. Uh, so I do think they'll have some kind of simulcast. Yes, uh, I mean if if Boomer and, and Geo can do a national simulcast of a local show, which to me has always been bizarre, then there should be appeal by a local television station to put the, to put that afternoon show on.
1: Yeah, I was I was surprised that after Mike and Fox Sports two didn't work out that they didn't have him picked up by MSG, especially because MSG lost Boomer and Cardin.
2: Yeah, they they definitely talked about it. You know, there's costs associated with it. And you know, in the past, I've talked to SNY's president Steve Rabb about simulcasts years ago, and he just was always kind of lukewarm about it. I mean, to me, to me, it makes a lot of sense. It's a, it's like a you know an innings eating in innings eating pitcher. You, you know, you have this thing that takes up four hours, and is of interest to people. Why wouldn't you do that instead of, you know, whatever? Just uh, you know. Water skiing competitions from Austria, or whatever the heck they put on there. So, um, yeah, I think, but I do think, yeah, they'll have some kind of simulcast.
0: I'm going to touch on this only because I worked there briefly as a freelance employee for about a year. Uh, a couple of years ago, I worked for the CBS Sports Network, and one of my duties in the morning uh, was to cover the Boomer and Carton Show, the simulcast uh, from six to ten, uh, and. I could personally speak about this, uh, but I mean, the callers that used to come in were from everywhere in the country and you would get calls from the Midwest, you get calls from Wyoming and you would get calls from people in California. Now, mind you, that show starting at 6, 7 AM, you know, right as it's, it's getting going, these people are up three, four in the morning, five in the morning calling from other places in the country Uh, Like I said, Midwest, West Coast. Uh, So if Boomer and Carton was as successful and had an outreach uh, as they did during their heyday, during that time period, uh, I would imagine that a network picking up uh, essentially half of that being Craig and Evan, who I think is really, really talented, I think he's really, really smart, I think he's one of the most knowledgeable sports personalities on air currently here in the New York area. Uh, I think it would be really, really successful. Uh, so I just wanted to, to share that quick before I move on here. Uh, so now we, we live in a world where we're dominated by social media. We're dominated by uh, especially Twitter 24 seven. How do you toe the line between sharing something, uh, either through your own Twitter account or, or through other channels elsewhere, or keeping the scoop yourself, consulting with people who are at the paper, uh, getting that story up on their website, uh, because obviously you don't want somebody else to have that scoop to get it out there before you, to beat you to the punch. But at the same time, you want to be able to drive that traffic to Newsday sites uh, to have people go there exclusively for that breaking piece of information. So how do you toe the line there? Uh, what is your strategy? Uh, what What is your personal philosophy uh, when you get a, a piece of news like that or a scoop like that uh, it, b- between posting it on Twitter and posting it on New Day site?
2: I mean, that's a very interesting thing that we think about, especially an old guy like me, who, you know, who remembers the time before Twitter. But even now, yeah, it's, I mean, it's obviously a case by case situation if they basically our policy is if, if, if you think there's a pretty good chance that, you know, this is not going to last, then you are free to post it on Twitter, even though it obviously doesn't do us any direct good. Um, but on the other hand, if you think there's a reasonable chance that it will hold, obviously, we'd prefer to get something up and link to our own story. Um, the the only problem becomes when you have a gray area where, you know, reporters, because of our egos, we're going to err on the side of, I'm just getting this thing out because I want to be first versus the editors might be like, yeah, why don't you err on the side of caution? It's not the worst thing in the world if Andrew Marcian posts something 10 seconds before you, whatever, you know, they don't, it's fine. People will read it anyway. Um, So yeah, that's where the ego has to come into play although the the this latest thing we just started with our islanders beat is um i mean it's this program called subtext where you know we're trying to sell subscriptions to have our beat writer uh tell subscribers something before in a text format before he puts it on twitter to you know try to monetize this and and you know reward people who subscribe to us but you know and and that's that's a work in progress but it goes back to the ego thing. It's like, well, wait a minute, if I post it on this first, but not on Twitter, then will people know that I had it? You know, so there's a lot of dynamics to that decision, and it's not there's a lot of gray areas. But I don't know. This is real quick a story about that along those lines. In 2004, when they when the Giants drafted Eli, well, traded for Eli on draft day. Um, I stood outside in the parking lot and I had a really good relationship with Kerry Collins. He comes walking out of the locker room that Monday and he said, uh, I said, oh yeah, you seen Tiki? I was looking for Tiki, I wanted to ask him about something. Kerry's like, no, I haven't seen him, but you know, I just start, he volunteers this. He said, I just talked to Ernie Corsi, I'm I'm out. He basically cut himself, He asked Ernie to cut him. (sighs) Well, it's 10 in the morning, I'm standing there by myself with this piece of information. In in 2021, that's going on the website immediately, and we're gonna link to it. You know, in 1994, it's gonna be in the next day's paper. In 2004, it's like, uh, what do we do? You know, does this go on the website or do I try to save it for the paper the next day? And that was a hard decision, but I was afraid Jay Glazer would talk to somebody's agent and have it by the end of the day. So we did post it on our website. But as an old newspaper guy to have a scoop of that magnitude it really hurt me in 2004 you know kind of gray area of the emergence of our website that hurt me to not have that scoop in the paper because by the next day's papers everybody knew it now again in this era it was a no-brainer 2004 that was hard
0: that's no, a really, really great point. And it's exactly what I'm getting at. Uh, I think the we've only gotten stronger since, and obviously the website has only gotten bigger and uh, more traffic since then. Uh, Neil, it was a pleasure having you on. Thank you for doing this with us. Uh, we're going to make sure to have you come on again uh, as soon as Nick and I are able to figure out a way to get Mike, which will be real soon. Uh, he might grow on first and he might be, Uh, a little adverse to doing podcasts but we'll get them and then we'll have you on again and we'll get to talk about more fun stuff so thank you again for doing this with us we really really appreciate it uh what we do here with our guests is we always give our guests the last words so if there's anything else you would like to share if there's anything else you would like to promote uh you know go right ahead the floor is all yours thanks again for doing this with us Uh, i'm still wishing happy new years even though we're 20 days into 2021 so i'm going to wish you and your family and your close friends uh, very safe, a uh, very happy, healthy in t- 2021. Uh, hope you guys stay safe, you know, throughout the, the pandemic going on. Hopefully uh, everything is back to normal real soon. Thanks again for doing this with us, Neil.
2: Well, thank you. I guess my only promotional thing is that, you know, Newsday, after all these years, it's changed like everybody, like every other publication has changed. But I have to say, after 35 and a half years, Newsday is still getting it done and covering New York Area sports in Long Island in particular, you know, as as well as anybody, better than anybody. So, uh, yeah, subscribe to Newsday.
1: There you have it. That's going to do it for this episode of You Know I'm Right for our special guest, Neil Best from Newsday and for my co-host, Joe Calabrese. I am Nick Durst, and this has been You Know I'm Right. Still paying hundreds of dollars for prescription glasses? Let's change that. At zeni.com, our factory direct model means no middlemen or outrageous markups. Just the same quality frames and lens options as the other guys, for one-tenth the price. Zeni offers prescription glasses starting at $6.95, as well as affordable sunglasses, blue blockers, and more. The best part? Try any frame, anywhere, with our 3D virtual try-on. Visit zeni.com today and change the way you buy glasses forever.